Welcome to Trauma-Informed Parenting, where you can find information about adoption, foster care, parenting a child with a capital letter syndrome, such as ADD, ADHD, FASD, SPD, on the spectrum, etc., and trauma-informed parenting, all in one place. I'm Kathleen Guire, your host, mother of seven, four through adoption, former National Parent of the Year, author, teacher, and speaker, but more important than any of those things, I'm a parent just like you. I know what it's like to raise kiddos with trauma histories and capital letter syndromes. I used to feel as if I were the only one struggling, and because I felt that way, I isolated myself. I don't want you to feel alone in your parenting journey. So grab a cup of coffee and join me for Trauma-Informed Parenting, a Coffee Break Podcast. Hi, Kathleen Guire here. Welcome to this episode of Trauma-Informed Parenting. Dr. Jared Brown is back. Welcome, Dr. Jared. Hey, Kathleen. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for being on the show again. Oh, absolutely. Honored to be here. Now, we have a rather heavy topic, but a very important topic today, FASD and problematic behaviors, a neurobiopsychosocial perspective. So I will let you just take off there, Dr. Jared, and give us a little bit of background for this and why it's important. Yeah, first of all, I just want to say that... What I'm sharing today, I'm not intending to like scare people or alarm people, but most of the work I do in the area of FASD really focuses through the criminal justice, the forensic psychological lens. Lots of people, lots of groups reach out to me when they're, in some cases, when they're working with someone with FASD who may engage in problematic behavior or come into contact with the criminal justice system. But I do want to stress too, there's plenty of people that have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or who are dealing with maybe some sort of other type of neurodevelopmental or neurocognitive disorder who never engage in, in like problematic criminal behavior. But my goal today is maybe to just tease apart what could be going on if someone does engage in problematic behavior, irrational behavior, violent behavior, aggressive behavior, even just full-blown criminal behavior. It's complex. And Kathleen, you mentioned in the title the neurobiopsychosocial perspective or analysis. I find that very helpful when I consult on cases. And any case I consult on, I'm really guided by a number of different fields of study. So I'll just point out what these fields of study are. We won't have time to get into all these today, but I do a lot of work in the area of neurocriminology. We'll talk a little bit about that today. I try to also look through a lens of neurocounseling. Psychoneuroimmunology is a big field of study that I, I do a lot of work in. I always consider the central nervous system. Hmm. Any kind of prenatal or early childhood trauma, not just exposure to alcohol or drugs, but what happens in childhood too, did the person ever sustain a head injury? 
Hmm. from getting hit in the head or falling off a bike or unfortunately in some cases domestic violence or child abuse could result in head injuries. I also look through a lens of attachment, Hmm. blood sugar dysregulation, the prefrontal cortex, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal access, the gut brain health access, sleep disorders, alexithymia and theriamine are the big areas that I tend to look through. That's kind of what guides my work. Now that that's a lot to chew on if you've never heard of these topics. I get that. I've been studying these topics for many years and I've really found that those areas I just listed off have really helped me better understand complex human behavior. It doesn't necessarily have to mean criminal behavior, but again, if it's just behavioral problems in general, learning about those topics have really opened my eyes to maybe why some people do the things they do. And if you've never heard of the the field of neurocriminology, the reason why I find that field very helpful, especially if if we're ever studying criminal behavior in general, because that field of study takes into account neuroscience research, so what's going on in the brain. It also takes into account genetics and behavioral genetics. That does play a role in some cases. We need to consider like family of origin factors, intergenerational transmissions of trauma, epigenetics research, things of that nature. Neurocriminology research also takes into account biochemistry psychophysiology as well so it's really i think a a holistic picture that can help us better understand maybe why some people do the things they do and if we start looking at this through kind of like a neurobiopsychosocial lens some things to consider hormonal disruptions it's it's absolutely a factor that we need to take into account because hormonal dysfunctions can be very common among people that are chronically sleep deprived, who mm-hmm. don't eat well. We've talked about excessive excessive sugar consumption. That can throw off one's hormones. We also need to be aware of psychophysiology. So what's going on physiologically in our bodies? Nutrition does play a role. I've looked through that lens as well, being aware of like the Western diet, excessive sugar consumption, energy drink consumption. If you look at this through that neurobiopsychosocial lens too, it does take into account not just prenatal alcohol exposure, but was there exposure to tobacco in utero? Was Hmm. there exposure to environmental contaminants like lead, mercury? Was there malnutrition going on where maybe birth mom wasn't getting proper vitamins or minerals and during pregnancy? that may have had an impact on that child's developing brain or body. So these are just a few things that I kind of look through when we're starting to think about the neurobiopsychosocial kind of framework and lens. Before I get specific into FASD, Kathleen, is there any anything you want me to clarify or do you have any thoughts on any of that? Well, I did have a thought on this. I think this is a really important thing to dig into because... I just want to say, parents, if you're listening to this and your children are having these problematic behaviors or maybe they've already, they're teens and they've already gotten trouble with the law or you've had to call the police, it can feel very isolating as a parent. 
you look around at the families around you who are or raising neurotypical children or and their kids didn't have any trauma, they don't have any capital letter syndromes, and they just seem to be sailing through life without any of these issues. And we parents just take that guilt on, like if you have just listened to everything that Dr. Jared listed, like maybe it's not your fault, <laughs> you know? Maybe it's something that happened to your child before he came home in air quotes to you, or maybe it's some other hormonal issue. We parents will feel guilty for everything. And we start thinking, have we, have we done too much for the child? We, were we the helicopter parent? Did we not do enough for the child? Were we too permissive? And we start blaming ourselves, but it's so much more complex than that. And there are so many other issues that we need to consider. And it's almost like as a parent, I would recommend because some of my kids did get in trouble with the police and did some things when they were teenagers. And it's almost as if you have to remove yourself from the situation and be like a viewer of your child who is on a screen and then say, let me watch this and what's really going on here. Instead yeah. of saying, this is my fault. I did something wrong. So I just wanted to throw that in there before you went on. Yeah, it's a, it's a good reminder. And I mean, every case I've ever consulted on, it's, it's complex. You cannot just point to the fact someone was exposed to alcohol in utero and saying, okay, they're going to grow up and commit a crime. Mm-hmm. It's a multitude of factors we need to take into account. It's not... I don't want people walking away today thinking if someone has FASD, that equals criminal behavior. Absolutely not. But what happens if someone has FASD and then early on in childhood, they are exposed to all kinds of trauma and they have attachment issues Mm -hmm. and they're gullible and naive and suggestible and they're talked into doing things and they have self-regulation problems and These are all the things that start piling up that may, in some cases, bring that person into contact with the criminal justice system. But unfortunately, too, Kathleen, what I see happen in most cases is if someone with FASD does come into contact with the criminal justice system, a lot of times it's because of being victimized Mm. and being perpetrated against in some cases as well. So we need to take that into account when we're, we're thinking about this topic. So let, let's hypothetically say someone with FASD does start engaging in problematic behavior. Maybe it's full-blown behavior that brings that person into contact with the criminal justice system. What could be going on here? Everyone with FASD has executive functioning impairments, so that will probably be a factor to take into account because if someone does have executive functioning impairments, that impacts decision-making, that could impact their problem-solving abilities, it can play a role in that person having more self-regulation deficits. And what I, at least the cases I've consulted on over the years, if that person does end up committing a criminal behavior, a lot, most of the time, it's never like planned in advance. It's very in the moment. 
really impulsive kinds of behaviors. A, a lot of times, if you look at the FASD literature, one of the first reasons why some people with FASD do come into contact with the criminal justice system is because of very minor thefts. Hmm. So if you are seeing patterns where that individual is starting to steal things or not understanding the concept of ownership, those are very important target areas for intervention. That is something I see frequently is that might be one of the first ways in which someone with FASD could maybe start having some contact with the criminal justice system. But whatever it is, most of the time, at least in my experience too, it's something in the realm of impulse control issues, self-regulation problems, not thinking through one's behavior, that inability to delay gratification, not connecting the dots where the person may not understand that what they're doing might not have their best interests in mind. And they're just thinking about this exact moment. They're not thinking about an hour from now, tomorrow, five years from now. We'll talk about abstract thinking and abstract reasoning deficits in a minute, but those are a few things just to think about as we start planting the seeds. Executive functioning impairments, impulse control problems, self-regulation deficits are a big driver in some cases. Kathleen, any any thoughts on those variables? Yeah, and I wanted to, because you started with theft, that I wanted to mention that. And I just want listeners to know that that is common because that's one of my kiddos. That's what he started with. And it was really because, first of all, of those things you mentioned, executive function, impulse control, not understanding the consequences kind of thing. But also, when it, it was a neighbor who he had spent time with, who was an elderly man who said to him one day about his coins in this jar, anything you ever want from my house, you just come and get it. Okay? You, yeah. cannot, you cannot say that to a child. So my son one day went over and took some coins out of a jar and next thing you know, I'm getting a phone call. Your son came over and stole something out of my house, and I'm thinking of calling the police. Thankfully, he didn't because we worked it out, but it was just my son just didn't understand. He did not have the executive function. He didn't know, like, the social rules of you do not walk in. Like, no matter how many times you tell these kids, you do not walk into somebody's house. And and sometimes people don't even know they need to tell their kids that. You do not walk into somebody else's house. And then another situation, which was a little less intense, was another of my neighbors who used to ask my boys to come down and help with the yard work. And they loved to do that. And then he would give them a soda as a reward. And one day he mistakenly said to them, you can come in and get one, of, get one of these out of my refrigerator anytime you want. So guess what happened? Yep. <laughs> they started going down there every day. <laughs> and then I got a phone call. I have daughters. I have, you know... They are in the house, and your boys are just walking inside my house and getting a soda out of the fridge. And I said, well, what did you say to them? So we had the conversation. I said, you can't say that to them. 
So, yeah, so that's like, that's the beginning. That's the beginning phase. (laughs) And if you are paying attention, so if your child is doing that now, what do you do? Well, that is a great segue into introducing your audience to abstract reasoning deficits, conceptual thinking deficits, which everything you're saying is partially linked to that. So Hmm. when someone has abstract reasoning or thinking deficits, connecting the dots is very, very tricky. So they have a hard time seeing the forest through the trees, Hmm. understanding how and why questions understanding consequences that's that's a big reason why let's say someone with FASD does unfortunately end up in the criminal justice system a criminal justice system that doesn't utilize FASD informed approaches often results in that person not being successful in completing probation or whatever they need to do to get out of the criminal justice system a lot of times once they get in it's very difficult to get out because hmm. standard consequences don't work in a lot of cases. Their brains don't connect the dots. So they, the probation officers, the courts don't understand FASD that often. Most, In my experience, most courts, most probation don't have a lot of training and awareness in it. So they just assume that this person is continually doing the same mistakes over and over again because they want to rather than it might be a product of brain damage from prenatal alcohol exposure. Right. If you have abstract reasoning deficits, Kathleen, too, you have a hard time generalizing and taking what you've learned in one setting and then applying it to another setting. So let's say someone's court ordered to go to treatment. They may do quite well like sitting with a therapist one-on-one in an office. So the therapist then thinks, okay, this client really mastered that skill. But then someone with FASD who has generalization deficits, the minute they leave that therapy office, they go right back to making the same mistakes over and over again because they can't take what they've learned in one setting and then apply it to like the bus ride home or on the job or at school and in on the playground or wherever. So generalization deficits, big, big issue when we have abstract reasoning issues. Another thing you did mention is when someone has abstract reasoning deficits, the concepts of like ownership and money and even time can be very, very tricky. I see this play out a lot. Mm. What you and I have talked about like screen time exposure. Let's say you're a parent and you tell your child or teenager you have 30 minutes left on the screen and they have abstract reasoning deficits, in 30 minutes you go up there and they're nowhere near being done and then you get frustrated as the parent, then your child or teenager gets frustrated because you're frustrated because they don't know what the heck you're frustrated about. Their brain doesn't compute 30 minutes. They, they right. Their brain may tell them, I've only been on five minutes. I have 25 minutes left. You have to make things very concrete and very visual. And this is where it gets even more tricky. People with abstract reasoning deficits oftentimes have, have greater difficulty processing and interpreting verbal information. So parents who are always giving verbal instructions 
you, you, you think the child's getting it, but sometimes their brains are not computing it. So then you're trying to give a consequence and you give a verbal consequence and you're talking louder, you're more frustrated. That can overwhelm a brain, especially if you have FASD and abstract reasoning deficits. And this all this can trickle down into having more social skill impairment. It can look like the person is somewhat stubborn or rigid but it's really kind of rooted in those abstract thinking deficits. So that's a big, big topic too that we we definitely need to take into account. When someone with any kind of disability gets involved in the criminal justice system or just starts engaging in really problematic behavior. So I'll stop that discussion, Kathleen. I'll see if you got any thoughts on abstract thinking or reasoning. Well, I just had two thoughts, and it was really just practical kind of things. Like my grandson, Robin, who's on the spectrum, one of the gifts I got him for Christmas, which my daughter asked me to get, was just a little stoplight thing that has red at the top, yellow is actually a little tiny stoplight, and then green. And so she uses that to remind him when his time's going to be up. It starts going yellow when the time's almost up. When time's up, it's red. And she used that same practice for her twins, who were both on the spectrum, but she actually made little paper stop signs. like, And they would respond to those better than they would a verbal command. And Absolutely. You have the great practical strategy. Yes, it's very concrete. It's visual. You can, yeah, it's a great way to do it rather than giving that verbal command. Or if you do give the verbal command, match it with something like that. Make it concrete, make it visual, practice it. That That's absolutely a great strategy, I think. Right. And just another piece of advice that the psychologist that was working with my son who is on the spectrum and has some processing disorders and FASD, she told me, she said, when you are giving him an instruction and he has this blank look on his face and then he looks mad, he is not being defiant. He actually cannot process what you are saying. So we need to be aware of that. And that was really a zinger, like a bee sting for me, because I was like, oh, my goodness. Here I was taking that as just giving me a defiant look when he really couldn't process what I was saying. So we parents need to be aware of that as you're talking through all of this. Maybe listeners are going, well, wait a minute. I didn't realize that that was going on or that was an issue. I just thought my child was being rebellious and it's because he wasn't processing. When we think of processing speed deficits, think of a traffic jam in in the person's brain. Mm. So one of the best, I've seen this play on a couple cases I've consulted on where the person did have profound processing deficits and they did give off kind of unusual facial expressions to the professionals where it made the professional think, that the person, yeah, just was either bored or angry. But if once you dug deeper, the person was just overwhelmed and confused. Mm. So basic tips, I said, is just one task at a time. Talk a lot slower. Be okay with silence. Because mm-hmm. if you ask a question and your child or teenager or even adult doesn't respond right away, it might not be that they're not responding right away because 
of like willfulness, their brain might just need a little extra time to kind of process it and make sense of it. And when we think of that too, a couple other just basic things to consider that is support in the FASD literature, actually hearing impairments and listening deficits are more common in people with FASD than we realize. So have you ever worked with your healthcare provider to just rule out maybe is there any hearing issue going on that that could be an issue as well. And when we're talking about this too, with the processing speed, you want to take into account their working memory, which is our brain's post-it note. And you also want to take into account theory of mind deficits, which might be more common too. Theory of mind relates to perspective taking and that person's ability to understand the mental states of other people, which can be a barrier too when that person might be communicating with other people or even working in a group setting. So theory of mind deficits, something you want to be aware of as well, as well as working So There's a multitude of other topics you want to consider. But one other topic too that frequently comes up on the cases I consult on is the topic of developmental immaturity. All too often, unfortunately, someone with FASD does not function at their chronological age. Mm-hmm. So if let's take a 16-year-old individual with FASD, their brain may function as a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old. So you have to be very, very careful with what kind of vocabulary you're using. If you're a treatment professional listening to this, be aware of developing an intervention or goal plan that takes into account their emotional and their behavioral and their cognitive capabilities really over how old they are on paper because how old they are on paper really means nothing to me. It mm-hmm. really, how old is their brain? How, how mature are they? Because unfortunately too, a lot of people with FASD can be more gullible, more naive, more suggestible, and they may be more prone to confabulate as well. So these are all very important topics to consider when we're thinking about like problematic behavior, but equally important when we're considering vulnerability, victimization, safety considerations as well. Before I move into metacognition, which is a big topic, Kathleen, any thoughts on that? Yes, and I was I agree because a lot of times these kiddos are like their emotional age is half their physical age, and then we also have to consider family age. Like if a child has been in an orphanage for the first seven years of their life, and they're in a social situation outside of that orphanage, which they grew up in and didn't experience a lot of the world, like going to a museum or going to school or doing some of the other things that we consider normal in our culture, then they don't know in which like social situation what's acceptable. And if they have executive function impairments, then they don't even know how to process what's going on in this new environment. And I see that a lot. There's this expectation And one of the things that I do not like to hear is when someone adopts a child from the former Eastern Bloc countries and they bring them home or even China and they bring them home and these kiddos have been in an orphanage setting their whole life and they take them to Disney World because they want them to experience life. And I'm like, what are you doing to this child? 
There's so many other things that you have to consider before you enter into the culture as we know it so that you don't overwhelm your child and just all of those things that you were talking about. I was like looking through the lens of my past and thinking about all the things that my kids had to adjust to coming out of an orphanage. Like they didn't know any of this stuff. In fact, I remember the first time we I had to drive them to the doctor. They had been in the United States for not even 24 hours and that was required. We had to take them in and get them checked and all these kinds of things. And they screamed the whole time they were in the car and like, is this your car? You know, in Polish. They had never ridden in a car before. So all of those things. Oh, yes, we, yes. We have to, a lot of things come to mind when I hear this. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'm sure you've dealt with situations where kids like you're like, they don't have any family experience. They don't have any life experience. Yeah, just to, what you're saying. Let, let's let's start with social intelligence for one. So social immaturity, they might have social unawareness, which could trickle down into impacting social communication or social problem solving and social decision making abilities. Mm. And when we look at this through this lens of like social intelligence, this can impact perspective taking, their ability to really understand what it means to form a healthy relationship with other people and just how to navigate complex social situations like cooperation, turn-taking, when do I introduce myself to someone, how do I talk to a, a, a child differently than an adult, do I talk to a stranger, and these are all things that come up frequently so we want to look at a social intelligence lens. When you talked about the international adoptions, what comes to mind too is, I don't know with 100% certainty, but I would sure assume that almost every one of these kids would probably have a very sensitive nervous system mm-hmm. or maybe profoundly damaged nervous system. Because if you're talking about like international adoptions, some of these kids may have been exposed to horrific traumas in utero that damaged parts of their brain. Mm-hmm. And then depending on how long they were in these settings, they may have dealt with neglect, nutritional deficiencies. I mean, there's so many factors to take into account. And you brought up the Disney World thing. Think of the nervous system. Things are very sensitive in general for like newborns. But just think about a child who's exposed to drugs or alcohol in utero. The slightest change in routine bright lights if you're feeding that baby and you have the tv going in the background the very noise of that tv or light can overwhelm that little baby's brain because they're just so sensitive Mm -hmm. and a lot of these kids may have sensory processing issues so that is supported in the fasd literature so probably not a bad idea through a multidisciplinary treatment lens to take into account sensory processing as well because if someone has sensory processing issues as that person gets older it could contribute to more unexplained behaviors it could contribute to more mood dysregulation where you see a lot of up and down mood swings Mm -hmm. for some people with sensory issues they might have really over responsive behaviors or they could have really under responsive behaviors where it looks like they almost shut down and almost non-responsive. Some people with sensory processing issues may not wear certain clothing 
where they refuse to eat certain kinds of foods and they can be very sensitive to light and smells. And I, I do a lot of work in the area of sleep. And I am aware that there's at least one study that talked about, it, it, it was a sleep-related article in the FASD world that talked about people with FASD might be more sensitive to cologne or perfume mm. or scented candles or even scented soaps. So that's something that could overwhelm the senses as well. And when someone's overwhelmed in terms of like sensory processing, they may lack body awareness. They may bump into things more. They may have a really difficult time navigating a stairs or going up and down a ladder if they ever need to do that, or even using a scissors. It can get, their body can just become so dysregulated. So what you said, Kathleen, reminded me of sensory processing social intelligence and the central nervous system as well right and everything that you just talked about i just wanted to say true story true story true story like i've seen all of that well we're out of time for today so we kind of go got off topic but we're really famous for that so any (laughs) (laughs) any last thoughts before we close out this episode so We talked about a number of different topics, and I wish we had another few hours to dig deeper, but again, (laughs) if someone with FASD engages in problematic behavior, there's likely a multitude of factors going on, but some of the big ones you might want to consider, executive function, self-regulation, developmental immaturity, abstract reasoning deficits, attachment and trauma things, And if you were to start pulling in the neurobiopsychosocial components to this too, it's really a more holistic understanding, thinking about, you know, what role does sleep deprivation play here? Blood Mm -hmm. sugar dysregulation or digestive health issues and all of these things can help, I think, better understand when someone does engage in irrational behavior, unreasonable behavior, criminal behavior, anger, all of these things. So I wish we had more time, Kathleen. I, I think too. that's probably it for today. So I think that's a lot of information for people to digest. So thanks for being on the show again. Thank you, Kathleen. Thanks for listening to Trauma-Informed Parenting. Make sure you subscribe on traumainformedparenting.com to receive a free resource and receive a newsletter plus updates when books or new courses are released. Also, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Podomatic, or Spotify and leave a review so other listeners can find trauma-informed parenting and know the value of the show. You're welcome to send me an email to contact at traumainformedparenting.com.